the uh, passage that was read earlier by Joey, uh, if you would keep in mind that that was kind of the setting uh, for our sermon today. And we come to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Can anything good come from murmurings? Or I may call this the gospel is more powerful than our murmurings. Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose among the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews that had come from around the Mediterranean to settle there in Jerusalem, and then the Hebrews were the Aramaic-speaking Hebrews. Verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, and Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed, laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So, as we're looking in Acts, the last sermon I preached, it's been several months ago now, but it was Acts chapter 7, if you remember the sermon of Stephen, how he was stoned after that and he gazed into heaven and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father Almighty to welcome him home. This is the Stephen that was appointed as a deacon. So as we look in Acts, we would say this is to the ends of the earth. And they don't see it now, but what was about to happen with the stoning of Stephen, the gospel message was going to go forth with power. The phrase in Acts 1.8, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. So they were in Jerusalem and the word is getting ready to break forth. And so this passage, Acts 1-8, represents the horizon that Jesus had in mind when he discharged the apostles to go and preach the gospel, when he gave them the great commission and the great commandments. They were to preach, first of all, in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost, if, you, if we would use the King James English. We've noticed, and you'll notice again in Acts... How appropriate the title is because one of the things that Dr. Luke, the author, is most interested in and what he notes on more than one occasion is the numeric growth of the church. Luke punctuates his writing as he does here in chapter 6 again with an indication that the number of disciples were constantly growing. More and more of the people were being added uh, to the church, brought into the fellowship. And sometimes we say that God isn't interested in numbers We sometimes say, look at the New Testament church. You know, they weren't interested in numbers, but I would say at least that was noted here. And so they were interested. And let me tell you why or how they were interested. Because you see, numbers meant people to them. And people meant needs. And needs ultimately meant the need of a Savior. People meant needs and ultimately needs. The need of a Savior. 
And so one of the things that we wrestle with and we when we spent the 10 years in southeastern Kentucky among the rural churches there is when we go forth and we take the gospel with us and we establish new churches and, and plant new churches. Well, how does that work in communities that are actually numerically shrinking while the number of churches are increasing? And so sometimes we employ the idea of church revitalization where we come in and try to help them revive the church. We raise up the leaders from within and be able to do that. And so um, we take that for granted, I think, sometimes in our churches, especially our elder-led churches, because God has put elders over us, uh, the spiritual care of souls, if you would. And that is our one of our prime responsibilities. Evangelism would be another and so we wrestle with this. Do we start new churches in these places where they already have many churches? And that's the work of the elders is, number one, how are we going to send the gospel forth in a sustainable way? And number two, what is that going to look like as we plant churches or try to help churches revitalize? And so these needs that are in the community, certainly they're in the communities that ultimately need the need of a Savior. This is the reason why Dr. Luke tells us about the way the church, the Lord was adding to the church such that we're being saved. The Lord was adding to the kingdom. And so from the point of view of the New Testament church, when the church was not growing numerically, it is a cause for renewed prayer. It's a cause for burdening ourselves for those who are unbelievers in our communities around us for concern because it means that the people are not being brought to a living faith in Jesus Christ. And so Luke again and again constantly punctuates this with the expansion of Christianity tells us that numerically they were growing. There are far more Christians in the world today than there ever have been before God is honoring his promise that through Christ Jesus his church will be built so Luke is interested in the numerical growth but he's also interested in another kind of growth and that's the one Acts 1 8 growth not simply numerical growth but geographical growth geographical spread if you would in chapter 1 verse 8 that we referred to a minute ago it, it really reads like the table of comment of contents for the book of Acts the staging posts, if, if you would, in the geographical expansion of the kingdom of God from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria in the ends of the earth. And then in chapter 6 today, we come to the beginning of the developing point when the gospel is going to burst outside the walls of Jerusalem and break into Judea and then Samaria. And so this little story that seems to be about a minor difficulty that might become a major difficulty in the life of the church. It seems to focus attention on the life of one individual in the church. And it's really setting the scene for the next push. For the next Holy Spirit empowered advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Out of Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria and ultimately the ends of the earth. It's a very interesting thing and very fascinating thing from a spiritual point of view. That the catalyst for this situation for the expansion of the church by these unexpected means Jesus Christ fulfills his promise to build his church and what were these means number one number one a problem arose in the fellowship of the church we are sinners we're all sinners and when we interact we have this and it's only by God's grace that we are able to encourage each other 
and build each other up. It's the exercise of the spiritual gifts, the Holy Spirit at work within us, encouraging each one another, building each other up in the faith. But this problem arose in the fellowship of the church, and that was this unexpected means that Jesus used to fulfill his promise. Number two in one of its members was martyred, and that, of course, was Stephen in the next chapter. Stephen the deacon. Many say that the whole of the Old Testament is a series of footnotes leading up to Genesis chapter 3. Let's read that together, or I'll read it on the screen. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that brought us through the Old Testament to the point where Christ came. And by that same token, we can say that the whole of the New Testament is a series of footnotes leading up to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. What had he said? He said, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, upon this confession that you have made, that Jesus is the Christ, he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell are always defensive. So I say the rest of the New Testament is a series of footnotes to to that because of what we find in the rest of the New Testament and here in the Acts. That Christ is building his church and, and Satan and hell throws everything it has against Jesus' building program. It's impossible in the light of Jesus' statement here in Matthew sixteen eighteen that it could be any other way. But the advance of Jesus Christ is unstoppable. The building of the church of Jesus Christ will constantly be challenged by the powers of darkness that will seek to destroy it. But from the New Testament point of view, the church is constantly being built in a war zone in enemy-occupied territory. We must not lose sight of it. It's a fascinating thing to notice that before this chapter 6 had ended, the powers of darkness will have gone through these strategies. And here are these strategies. In fact, Satan only has three strategies by which he uses to destroy Christ's church. Number one, it's by persecution. Number two, it's by the spiritual failure or the hypocrisy of its members from the inside. And number three, divide and conquer. Get the members to be at one another's throats, and then Satan can just leave us to destroy ourselves. So having tried each of these three methods, and in each case Satan having failed, and the result being that the church was even further enlarged and increased, by the end of this chapter, Satan goes back to this first, first method. That it in itself should teach us something, should it not? Paul said we shouldn't be ignorant of the devices that Satan uses, and from Satan's point of view, these are his devices. Therefore, I would say to the Church of the Most High God. Therefore, beloved, be on your guard against these three things and recognize that he may use persecution. And if persecution fails, then he may use the law of spirituality and inevitable hypocrisy of its members. And if that is dealt with by the fellowship of God's people, then he will resort to the divide and conquer. Let me just sidetrack for a minute and say the hypocrisy of its members. Have you noticed how many people will 
be a part of the church for a while, then decide to leave the church because they've fallen into sin or something to that effect. And you go to them and you say, well, we would love to have you back in church. Well, they would counter that, well, I don't want to be a hypocrite. In other words, I don't want to have this sin hanging over me before. But let me say that is the church not the place for hypocrites to be? Were we not all hypocrites at one time or another in our lives? Sitting under the teaching and preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that not the place for hypocrites to be? So this is a word of the wise this morning. Those who are taking in the teaching of Dr. Luke here. And so let's look what he says more particularly here. Because he goes on to speak about the tactics of the evil one. We've already spoken about the vast growth and perhaps upwards of 20,000 people had been added to the church since the day of Pentecost. 20,000 people that were recognizing that Jesus was the Messiah. It was natural. Natural then as it is now. Those house churches would have groups of people who naturally and culturally gravitated toward one another. So it was that we're told in verse 1 that here are the house churches where there are Grecian Jews... They've been converted to Christ and they worshiped together. They were nourished. They were pastored together. These were the Jews who had come from outside of the Holy Land, from outside of Jerusalem, and had wanted to move back to the homeland. Doubtless there were many widows among them. And you remember Rome didn't take care, didn't have social services. Many of the faithful Jews wanted to spend their last days in Jerusalem, even if they hadn't spent the rest of their lives there. So there were these native people whose native language is Aramaic or Hebrew, whose lifestyles were not aligned with the Hellenistic or Greek culture of the rest of the Mediterranean, even though by birth they were Jewish people. But yet these cultures, even among the Jewish people, were very distinctive because of the way they had come to Jerusalem. People who had been brought to faith in Jesus Christ hadn't immediately put off their native cultural baggage any more that you or I would do. It was natural for them to meet with people of like-minded or, in this case, like language. But the fact that they met in these different groupings was natural and it became a seedbed for division that would be almost demonic. It arose apparently for a very clear reason. There, presumably, being so many widows who had come from outside of Jerusalem, there may well have been a disproportionate number of needy widows in the Greek-speaking churches than there were in the Aramaic or Hebrew-speaking churches. As the apostles, who you remember from earlier, were responsible for the intake of the generosity for the gifts of God's people and for the distribution of the gifts of God's people, Barnabas, in chapter 4, had brought this gift and laid it at their feet. With 20,000 people, presumably several hundred house churches spread out around Jerusalem, different cultures coming together, it would have been very easy not to notice that there simply wasn't enough in the daily distribution of food among these Greek-speaking believers. But if you read the verse carefully, you'll notice that the real problem, the heart of the problem here was not the question of the amount of food or even the distribution of food. They were tending to those needs the real problem lay in the murmuring of the hearts of these believers luke makes it very clear the grecian jews among them complained and notice he didn't say they complained because their widows weren't getting enough food but they complained against the hebraic jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food the language that dr luke uses here is full of significance it's a 
relatively unusual word in the New Testament. The word is complaining, or I think would be better translated murmuring. They were murmuring against the Hebraic Jews. The word that sounds like what it means, murmuring, it indicates it, it's, it's not clear speech in front of God's people. It's mumbled speech behind the hands outside of the fellowship. It's murmuring against others, a murmuring that's dangerous and subtle for these reasons. It's subtle because people who murmur always are able to point to something and say, and I'm right to murmur about this because something is going wrong. And they're right. There is, they do notice something that needs attention in the body. But the other side of that is because it's done behind the hands, because it's behind closed doors, it's a murmuring that spreads like a festering disease. And that is very difficult to locate and extremely difficult to deal with. And that was the case here. The reason why this was such a powerful instrument in the hands of Satan against God's people is because he had used this instrument before and that's exactly particularly why Luke uses the particular expression he uses here in the Old Testament drawn out of the days of Moses seeking to lead the people into the promised land numbers 14 uh, 26 to 32 and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me, say to them, as long as I live, declares the Lord that you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies is a result of your complaining and murmuring, he says. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, the ones that you said would be prey in the wilderness, I will bring in and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. You don't want to be stuck in the position of looking to the past and not looking forward to what God has for you in the future. It's a very dangerous place to be. Those days, the ache was in Moses' heart when he came to God and said, God, why is it? Why is it that you've given me a people who are so gifted in murmuring? Do we really want to be known for that? So gifted in murmuring. It's interesting to notice if you read through the narrative in Exodus about the wanderings in the wilderness, there was no instrument that was more destructive to the people of God in those 40 years than the instrument of murmuring interesting here isn't it satan can't do it by persecution he can't do it through the hypocrisy of ananias and sapphira remember in acts chapter 5 they wanted to bring their gift because barnabas had brought his gift and was recognized in the church for it they wanted to be but their motivation for it was to be recognized it was greed So Satan can't do it by persecution. He can't do it through the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Satan almost always does it through the very simple instrument of causing the people to murmur against each other. And it's that little word against that's the T. 
telltale sign about our speech. So when I speak about problems, there may be in the Christian fellowship difficulties. There may be situations, certain groups in the congregation. I have to ask myself, is my language for them or is it against them? If it's against those for whom Christ came from heaven's glory and died on a cruel cross outside of Jerusalem, brothers and sisters, then it's murmuring. It's sinful, it's demonic, and it's destructive. What do you think is the chief instrument that Satan has used to destroy Christian churches? But words of murmuring. That's simply the context of all of this, and I don't want to linger on it, but we ought to rush past this statement without allowing the full flood of its light to focus on our hearts. Because the insidious thing about a heart murmur among the people of God is that the person who has the heart murmur always insists that he or she is right and always is able to point proudly a finger and say, that's wrong, and that is why I am murmuring. But that little word against is the telltale sign of what goes on in my heart, in our hearts. Not my ability to point to something that's inadequate in the life of the Christian fellowship, but that fact that there is something in my heart that is set against a fellow Christian believer for whom Christ Jesus has died. Who do I think I am? If my master came from heaven's glory and died on a cross... For this fellow believer, what right in all of God's creation do I have, little me, to set my heart against my brother or sister in Christ? So there was this potential for serious division because the serious division was in itself very dangerous, very threatening. The murmuring hearts among God's people. An illustration how... We get distracted so easily on February 18th, 2001. Many of you will recognize the date here in a minute. Many of you will probably be angry with me if you're a Dale Earnhardt fan. But at Daytona International Speedway, the first race of the NASCAR season, there was a racer by the name of Dale Earnhardt who earned a reputation for his style of racing. Seven Winston Cup championships, 76 career wins. Love him or hate him, he knew how to race. But at 5.16 p.m. on February 18th of 2001, he was pronounced dead at Halifax Medical Center from a head-on crash into the wall on the last, very last lap of Daytona 500. He was only 49 years old. I remember it very well because I was so intent on the race. My favorite was Sterling Marlin, and he had the car to win it that day as well. But you see, Michael Waltrip won that day, Dale Jr., uh, was ahead of him. So in this last part of the race, there was Michael Waltrip, and then Dale Jr. was was number one and number two. On the last lap of the race, Dale Sr. was number three in the race. And as they're racing around, you know, at these great speeds, 200 miles an hour, uh, trying to get the edge on the other, there were two other drivers, Sterling Marlin and Kenny Schrader, and they were trying to get to that finish line as well. Well, Dale Sr. Not only owned the car that he was in, but he owned Dale Jr.'s car and he owned Michael Waltrip's car as well. And so in his mind, finishing one, two, and three at the first rate of the NASCAR season by all of his cars would be huge in NASCAR history. 
It'd be nothing like it that had been ever accomplished before. So Dale Sr., Dale Earnhardt Sr., changed his style of racing in that last lap, and it cost him his life. You see, what he did was try to hold off Sterling Marlin and Kenny Schrader. And so as he came around, he somehow tangled with Kenny Schrader because of his defensive style of driving. And it was like a, uh, when you, the, the pit maneuver that the police do to try to stop people. And it, it knocked uh, Dale Sr. sideways, and he went just head first into that concrete wall and lost his life. So no matter how good you are at life, you can't live your life running the race by concentrating on what's in your rear view mirror Philippians chapter 3 not that I have already obtained this or am I already perfect but I press on to make of it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own brothers I do not consider that I have made it my own but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus Let those of us who are mature uh, think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that surely also to you. So when you look behind, you begin to compare yourself to others and how they are running the race. And many times the murmuring wells up in our hearts to the point that it spills over. Not only does it sour us on the inside, but it spills over to our families. Then our families become sour. And then more and more families uh, in the church become sour. And then the church becomes sour. So I would say, dear ones, let's not focus on what is behind. Let's focus on what is before. Seeing that the gospel goes forth with power from this very pulpit. You remember... The gospel going forward and God accomplishing his plan and purpose. You remember in Genesis chapter 11, it was the Tower of Babel and they all gathered together. They all gathered together to build this great edifice, to lift themselves up into heaven because they thought more highly of themselves than ought. And you remember God in his triunion said, let us go down and confuse their languages. And by confusing their languages, it made them so angry with each other, it caused them to disperse. So man trying to get to God on his own, God will always disrupt that because man cannot do that. But in Acts chapter 2, when you see Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, he gathers all of the different language groups together again. It's that every man heard in their own language, and it mentions 13 different language groups that were gathered that day. So God knows what he's doing. And Peter and, well, Christ was reuniting the people of God under the preaching of the word, no matter what their language was. So Luke moves on, and you'll notice in chapter 6 here, from the seriousness of the division to the apostolic solution, what did they do? This little church in Jerusalem was well on its way to becoming a well-established church. And could we go so far as to compare ourselves to this first century church? And I would say certainly. We see that they had elders. So they did what good elders do. They organized the servants to oversee the daily needs. And of course, I say that tongue-in-cheek. They did appoint deacons, but that simply means servants. And please notice what their response is. The priorities that the elders had for themselves 
That was simply too much for them to do to keep up with this preaching, to keep up with the administration. So in verse 2 of Acts 6, they say, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait tables. They didn't despise waiting tables. They had a natural care and concern that came from God Himself to meet the physical needs of those in their congregation, those who were close to them. They had been doing it for months. They didn't despise it. They see it as something necessary for the welfare of God's people. But it would be wrong for the elders, those who have been called to proclaim God's word, to become consumed with something that could carefully be managed by others who would share the ministry and share the burden. So they say in verse 4 that they'll give this responsibility over to these new administrative servants and devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The first priority is prayer and ministry of the word and then meeting the physical needs of the body. So what's significant here is the fact in verse 5, this proposal, it pleased the whole group, even those who were murmuring. And that's the significant thing. The whole Christian church said, you are right. The one thing we must not lose sight of is the absolute centrality of the teaching and application of the Word of God to us. That has to be central. You have to keep on doing it. And that's what we as ministers and pastors and elders are called to do. It's what we as believers are called to do to see that the Word of God goes forth. Sometimes I smile at myself when I've been ministering for over a decade in these small unlikely uh, churches in southeastern Kentucky. I've noticed that in myself and others and whatever, you become a little weary. It's evident that you're struggling because there's so many things to do. And uh, I told Beth Ann, I said, one of the reasons I like to mow the lawn so much is that it's kind of like therapy for me. When you work in the church and with people and so many times you're disappointed because you don't see the fruit you want to see. You go out and mow the lawn, six hours later you can stand back and go, ah, every blade of grass just looks so perfect. But I've been struck by the fact that consistently people will say to me and others, could you not shorten the preaching a bit? Or I had someone say to me, could you not use such big words? And so I have to be humble about that. It may say something about me and I ought to be able to admit it that we elders should all be able to admit that we may not be the best orators. We have our limitations But what does this say about the life of the church? And I would submit to you that every church has a spiritual temperature. Could it just be that they were saying we don't need the teaching of the word of God to be quite so central as that? For those of you who know me know that I'm absolutely committed to the principle of what it is being preached from the pulpit needs to be worked through on three applicational levels. Number one, biblical principles must be applied individually in the hearts of the believers. Number two, biblical principles must be applied on a family level. Number three, biblical principles must be applied on a church leadership level as well. These principles must be applied as an entire congregation. All of these working together, understanding the centrality of God's word in the proclamation of his gospel. So that's what they did in the days of the New Testament. They met together. They met in smaller groups. They worked through the Word of God. And they were taught from house to house. But you see, they were committed. 
They were committed to the total priority of the gospel being proclaimed by every means. They shared that together because they had come to recognize that it was essential in order to develop and release all the other gifts that were in the church. Fascinating things. The thing about this is that they were able to find these seven men who were full of the spirit, full of wisdom, it says. So they set their priorities absolutely and centrally on the word of God going forth. And the thing that I say is most important here is that this proposal pleased the whole group. God's word was working in the hearts of God's people. And I'm praying for the day when I can go into these well-evangelized, well-discipled churches in Kentucky or West Virginia or Virginia and Appalachian region, step into the room and one of their leaders will say, what about you? Will you help with the pastoral duties of this church? And this church that we are absolutely committed to is the ministry of the word and it must absolutely be exercised in its full potential. When the congregation will recognize that. We, we can take care of everything else so that the elders can see that the word goes forth with power. The apostles were by no means demeaning the daily distribution of food. They were personally hands-on. They had been directly involved in serving of the food. But they were setting the priority for the whole church. And the priority for the whole church was that the church must be fed, nourished, and strengthened by the teaching of the word of God. Then notice that. Not only these priorities, but notice the principles that they gave to the church. And you might not be able to read this without not smiling to a certain degree. So here's this gang of people or group of people uh, within the church. And they say, uh, we've got a problem here. And what are you leaders going to do about it? Speaks to the heart, does it not? And the apostles say, well, that's a very important observation. It's an important problem. So what are you going to do about it? They tell the congregation. And so... This proposal actually pleased all the people. And so what was the proposal in verse 3? Uh, it says, Brothers, you choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we'll turn this responsibility over to them. And so you sense that there's wisdom in this, and there's this heart cry when they say, Please find us seven men. We need this. And, and wonderfully, they do this. And so it's important to notice that these men are not appointed simply or exclusively to deal with the distribution of the food. These men become, one of them, Philip, is actually named here. These men become the first evangelists. In the New Testament, these men were not like the evangelists of today. They focused their attention on the preaching of the gospel, which is well and good. But the evangelist was someone who was appointed as an apostolic deputy. And so he did the same kinds of things that the apostles did while the apostles were living. That's why these men take on responsibility, but as well as taking on this responsibility, immediately we discover in chapters 7 and 8 that these men are out there, outside the church, preaching the gospel. They're doing the same things that the apostles themselves are doing because they had been recognized by the congregation. They had been deputized by the apostolic band, if you would. The result is this, that not only is the distribution of food dealt with, but notice in verse 7. Please notice this, that the word of God yet again spread. Luke says this so often that eventually you get the full idea that this, this is what all these attacks are about, stopping the spread of the gospel. But like I said before, the gates of hell are always on the defensive. All that's been happening in the church is really designed to focus the church on itself by saying, Really, God, we're being persecuted. Maybe we better withdraw and, and nurse ourselves back to health. 
And since we have this problem spiritually, maybe we better look inward. So there's this problem with the distribution of the food, and we, we need to take care of ourselves better. Dr. Luke is saying, don't you see that all of these problems are simply instruments of Satan to stop the flow of the gospel to the world? I pray that you understand that from the text today. And so the apostle's answer to the problem is, is not simply to say, well, you'd better get people who are experts at distribute, distributing food. The real answer, we need to distribute food, but what we really need is men who are filled with the wisdom and the Holy Spirit. And I would add that we need women who are filled with wisdom and the Holy Spirit as well, who will be able to further proclaim the gospel. So that's the greatest thing we see here is spreading the gospel. So as you remember, we are told in Acts chapter 5 that they were accused of filling Jerusalem with this teaching. But we should be aiming at nothing less And that is to fill Beckley, West Virginia with this teaching of the gospel by whatever means we may legitimately use. Fill Raleigh County and southern West Virginia with the teaching of the gospel that we may flourish by the preaching of the word and the praising of his great name. We shouldn't be surprised then, like in verse 7, if the number of disciples increases rapidly and a large number of priests, it says, became obedient to the faith. So the third stage of the chapter, there was potential destruction, the apostolic solution, and then there was this renewed persecution. When we take the gospel message, we need to expect persecution. What's so fascinating about the problem in the church is that when you when you emerge on a solution side of the problem and you want to hold up your hands and say, okay, God, we've made it through this, we've accomplished this, can you now please give us a break? But as you go through the rest of the book of Acts, you'll find that God doesn't give them a break. In chapter 9, after the conversion of this fellow named Saul of Tarsus, he's now preparing for the church who has appointed Stephen. He's now preparing for the church to see that Stephen was his chosen instrument, the vehicle through which the church will begin to spread the gospel even through persecution. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria... Through the conversion of Saul, whose life is intimately related to the suffering and death of this young man, Stephen. We see through the conversion of Saul, the gospel being spread to the ends of the known world of the day. And that's the significance of Stephen. The real significance of Stephen lies not so much in the great sermon he preached in Acts chapter 7. But the real significance of Stephen is that by God's grace, his martyrdom is going to be the instrument by which God will open the floodgates of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we're giving what I'm pretty sure is the most striking hint of the battle right here in this passage in verse 5. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And we're told something about them. You'll notice what Stephen does is he goes and preaches the gospel. So verse 9, opposition arises from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen. And look at what follows. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. And it may not mean anything to you right now, but the province of Cilicia was a province where this little town of Tarsus was located. And Tarsus was the city which Saul of Tarsus had been reared. It strikes me as likely, if not almost certain, that this little hint that Luke is giving, that it's this very synagogue in which Saul of Tarsus belonged as a young man, that Stephen preached the gospel with power. 
Saul, one of the most learned men of the time, was able to reason him down by sheer weight of the Mosaic law. You also remember that when the clothes of the martyr Stephen are laid at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. So it's this little sign that Luke gives us and this little sign on whom the cloak, the cloak of Stephen is going to fall. You recall from the Old Testament the cloak falling on one that came after. Second Kings chapter 2 verses 9 through 14 when they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit upon me. Why are we not praying these? We need God's help to spread the word. We need spirit empowerment. Verse 10, he said, you have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as as they went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separate the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, my father, my father, and the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And then he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and the other. And Elisha went over. So Elisha said, Where are you, Lord? Struck the water and he saw the waters part. Saul, when he was on the ground... Having fallen from his horse in Acts chapter 9, when the bright light shone and he fell to the ground, you remember what Saul said? He said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So you see Elijah and Elisha and this double portion of God's spirit that was passed on to Elisha. And so Paul took up Stephen's mantle. You remember it was Ananias in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. It said, he, Paul, is going to be God's chosen instrument to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And so Satan returns to his first ploy, and that is persecution. God gets things in place, and he gets his man in place, a man whose ministry was cut short by this persecution. And yet this man, Stephen, becomes the one to open the floodgates of the gospel to go forth from Jerusalem. All right, what are the lessons that we need to take with us today? Number one, the church's greatest need and its greatest priority. The church, the pillar and support of the truth, led by its elders and deacons, are to unwaveringly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the church exists for. We also exist to worship God together and we engage in evangelism because there are multitudes who have not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, even here in our own communities. There are multitudes who are not worshiping God. And so we have two great ends, both of which fall under this umbrella of the glory of God. And then secondly, we worship him together corporately and as families for his glory. We reach a lost world because his glory is diminished when the word is not going forth. Let me say we attempt to diminish his glory when we don't take his word forth. All right. And that's central to the life of the church. The church's pathway to growth is not normally by ease and comfort. The church's pathway to growth never in the history of the Bible and never in the history of the church has it ever been by ease and comfort. We need to own this, beloved. God, thankfully, will always accomplish his purposes many times in spite of 
of our murmurings. The church's solution to problems is always to find men and women who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. The church's fruitfulness depends on people who are willing to risk everything, even their own lives, for Christ. So that's how the church grows. And if we want to be a growing church, we need to allow these principles to seep into our flesh, into our bones, into our hearts. And pray that God will make it happen. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we thank you for the record here in Acts of you working in this young church. They had no models to look to except your word. They had no power to depend on except your spirit. And so, Lord, we pray for ourselves, pray for the members of Daniel's Bible Church and for the impact of grace upon this church and upon the churches in southern West Virginia. I am not worthy. Pastor Carl, Pastor Justin, Dave Alderman, Dave Harvey, L.A., Lord, we are not worthy. None of us are worthy to even come before your throne, but yet... You have called us to this ministry, and so may we all be counted faithful to what you have called us to do. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.